Hi, ladies. Welcome back to Women in the Word. I'm Shelly Davis, and it is a joy to be here with each of you today as we continue on in Revelation. I hope you had a wonderful time in your small group. It's a great opportunity for us to discuss all these amazing things that we're learning together in Revelation. You know, there have been a lot of questions that have come up as we work through Revelation together. I love um, hearing all those questions and having the opportunity to answer some of those questions. Um, And because I was thinking about all those questions, I want to share with you the number one question at my house, and it has nothing to do with Revelation, but this is the question that comes up every single day at my house, and the question is, where in the world is the remote control to the television? For some reason, we can never find the remote control. It's like even if I put it down on the coffee table and walk away for 10 minutes, when I come back, it's gone. It's not there anymore. Um, And it drives my sweet husband crazy. He wants that remote control because it allows him to control the action on the TV. He's a sports guy. Right now it's basketball season. So he wants to be able to have that remote control and hit the pause button because it's during uh, the pause that he's able to stop the action wherever it is in that moment and then he can either go refill his popcorn bowl or he can talk about the latest bad call that the referee made. You know, we can just go over and over how they missed it and how it was wrong and his Beloved Aggies didn't um, get the right call. Uh, Important business happens when you hit that pause button. And as we um, continue our study of Revelation this week, it's going to be God himself who hits the pause button in the midst of the trumpet judgments that we were looking at last week. And God's divine pause is not to allow us to refill the popcorn or rehash what's been going on. His divine pause is to allow us to have important revelation about what he planned. His divine pause gives us additional revelation about his coming kingdom. So turn with me in your Bibles to chapter 10. And before we read, I want to recap just a little bit where we are right now as we're in God's divine pause. Two weeks ago with Lynn, we saw chapters 6 and 7 begin the tribulation with the judgments of God on the earth as the Lamb opened the very first seal on the scroll. The first four seals, if you remember, were those horsemen. You know, the white horse, which was the Antichrist, and then the red and black and pale horse. Peace was taken from the earth during those seals, as those seals were open. Famine and wars were ushered in. In chapter 7, we saw the 144,000 from the nation of Israel saved and sealed so that they could be God's true witnesses during this time. Last week, we had um, an amazing time with Vanita. In chapters 8 and 9, we saw that the seventh and final seal was opened. There was that 30 minutes of silence in heaven, 
and that seventh seal brought forth the seven trumpet judgments. And I want to look at that judgment chart again just for a minute. Thanks for putting that up. Now, this judgment chart is the same information that is actually on the bottom of your Revelation timeline. We've got it on the bottom of that Revelation chart, but it's in a little different graphic format here, so it may look different to you. Uh, the trumpet judgments pour out from the seventh seal. The seventh seal contains all seven trumpet judgments, and the seventh trumpet contains all seven of the bowl jump judgments. So we are going to be looking at those bowl judgments in greater detail in a couple of weeks when we get to chapter 15 and 16, even though we're talking about the seventh trumpet today. What's important to remember is, even though we're not looking at them yet, these seven bowl judgments begin with the seventh trumpet. Now, when Jesus opened the seventh seal on the scroll, the intensity of the judgments dramatically increased as the trumpet judgments began. The fifth, sixth, and seventh trumpets were actually called, if you remember, that eagle was calling out, whoa, whoa, whoa. In our last chapters, those uh, are the fifth, sixth, and seventh trumpet judgments described as woes. And chapter nine ended with the second woe, or the sixth trumpet judgment. Remember that army of 200 million that advanced on the earth? It was released and it destroyed a third of the people on the earth. But those that were not killed refused to repent. Um, and then right here as we begin chapter 10, God takes a divine pause in the action. And he does that in order to point us to the bigger picture of his eternal plan. So um, let's read together, beginning in chapter 10, uh, verse 1. I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, his face like the sun and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and called out with a loud voice like a roaring lion. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded, and when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write. But I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay. But in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. So God's divine pause here as we start chapter 10 is actually ushered in by a change of location by John. John has been witnessing the dramatic events of the judgments from heaven. Now he appears to be back on the earth receiving God's dramatic messenger who is a mighty angel. And the only thing we actually know about this angel is what John writes to us here. He has a dramatic appearance. He, has, he comes in a cloud. He has a rainbow that reminds us of God's faithfulness and God's mercy. His face is like the sun. His legs like fire. He's reflecting God's glory and God's might. 
His position on both the land and the sea gives the impression of his authority over the whole earth. Whatever his message is for John, his message is for the entire world. Now, he has a little scroll open in his hand. Uh, This is not the scroll that we saw back in chapters 4 and 5 that only the lamb could open. This one is already opened. It's small. It has no seals. This is a different scroll. And John hears the angel's voice here as a roar of a lion. And when he speaks, he's answered by the seven thunders. Now, John attempts to write down what the seven thunders say, which tells us he understands it, doesn't it? He um, he knows what was said by the seven thunders, but a voice from God, from heaven, stops him. No one really knows what John heard or why he can't record it, but what we do know is that John was given some incredible additional insight from our sovereign God, but our sovereign God is not yet ready to reveal it. The message of the seven thunders was actually for John's ears alone at that moment. But we do see the angel do something unique here. He raises his right hand. He takes a very solemn oath. He swears by the God that created all things. He swears by the everlasting God and the absolute authority on the earth. And the reason for that is only God is able to carry out God's will on the earth. The angel's solemn oath signals to us the importance and the significance of the announcement that this angel is going to be making to John. His announcement is that God's mystery is no longer going to be delayed. When the seventh trumpet sounds, the angel reveals that God's mystery will finally be fulfilled. Now, the mystery of God is not a puzzle that needs to be solved. It has actually been revealed throughout the ages in the scriptures by God's own prophets. Look at Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 on your verse sheet. Long ago, at many times and at many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through through whom he also created the world. So the angel's words here are not about some secret truth, but they're about the fulfillment of the prophet's words throughout the ages. And of course, our Lord Jesus, all of this had been revealed um, previously through the prophets and through our Lord Jesus in the scriptures. And that truth is that the Son of God would return a second time to establish his kingdom of righteousness on the earth. Our angel reveals that God's eternal plan for the kingdom of the world to become the kingdom of God is no longer going to be delayed. And what the angel is revealing here about God's mystery is an astonishing sequence of events that is poised to happen. The whole world is on the verge of seeing God's mystery rolled out before them. Let's walk through it together for just a minute. This is God's mystery about to happen. As the seventh trumpet sounds, very quickly in rapid succession, the bold judgments are going to be poured out on the world. So the window for salvation and repentance for unbelievers will be rapidly closing as those bold judgments appear. 
Now, there was possibly some time for repentance, uh, for people to come to repentance when the seal and the trumpet judgments unfolded. But the bold judgments that happened with the seventh trumpet are now going to come so quickly there's going to be much less time for people to repent. And as the bold judgments come to a climax with the seventh bowl, God's divine power and majesty is going to be displayed because at that moment, Jesus will return to the earth with his heavenly army at the second coming. Now, it seems that when the seventh trumpet sounds, followed quickly by those bold judgments, it's only going to be a matter of days in fact, I read one theologian who said it would only be a matter of hours before Jesus returns. Following the second coming of Jesus to the earth with his heavenly army to end the battle of Armageddon, the rest of God's mystery is fulfilled by the millennial kingdom as Jesus reigns on the earth for a thousand years. He's able to fulfill every promise ever made to the nation of Israel as the church reigns with Jesus. Throughout the ages and the scriptures, God has made known his plans for the nation of Israel. He's made known his plans for the church to reign with Jesus on the earth. He's made known his plans for judgment on all humanity that turned their back on him. And now this little scroll that the angel holds signals that God's eternal plan is at hand. Okay, let's read a little bit more. Look at verse 8 with me. Then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. And it was sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. Now, just as we talked about, throughout the ages, God's prophets have been given God's word to reveal to God's people. And here we see John, not just as Jesus' beloved disciple, but also as God's important, significant prophet who's got a significant revelation for the end of the age. A voice from heaven, which is probably either Jesus or God himself, commands John to take um, the little scroll which symbolizes God's revelation of the final events of his eternal plan and eat it. Now, no one really knows whether John actually physically ate that little scroll that the angel held or if this is some sort of metaphorical account. But I'm going to tell you what my thought is. I would speculate that John actually physically ate that scroll. He's been in heaven with God. He's been there watching everyone worship before the throne. He's seen God's lamb. Now he's back on the earth. He has this mighty angel standing there um, in front of him with his incredible appearance. And he has this voice commanding him to eat the scroll. I think all of you would probably agree with me. It is no time for John to be a picky eater. I think, uh, 
I think it's time for him to just eat the scroll. And our experience with John as an apostle and now as a, as a prophet is his obedience is real. Everything we've ever seen by John, about John, is that his obedience is real. And as strange as it may seem to actually physically eat a paper scroll that someone hands to you, we do see that throughout the scriptures. Uh, the prophets are commanded to eat God's word in other places in the scripture as well. Look at Ezekiel 3.1 on your verse sheet. And he said to me, son of man, eat whatever you find here. Eat this scroll and go speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and, I get, and he gave me this scroll to eat. And Jeremiah 15, 16 says, your words were found and I ate them and your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart. For I am called by your name, O Lord, God of hosts. Throughout the scriptures, eating God's word has been a picture of wholly consuming God's truth or internalizing God's word into your heart and mind, digesting it so that you really get it, understand it. And that's what John is being asked to do here, for him to internalize the truth that God is giving him, for him to digest it as he reveals it. Now, the revelation that John... Um, receives as he eats the scroll is most likely the rest of God's revelation that we have here, right here in our Bibles, his eternal plan for the world up until the end of the age. Um, and John is uh, commissioned, um, and, when, and the truth that John is commissioned to eat, uh, and his reaction to the truth is exactly as the angel predicts, isn't it? Um, receiving God's truth for John is initially sweet in his mouth. It's very satisfying. It's good to him, because I think it would be in incredibly encouraging to John as he internalizes God's faithfulness, God's mercy, God's power, God's sovereignty of the truth that's contained on that scroll. But even all that doesn't make the words that John eats stay sweet. Once in John's stomach, after he digests it and realizes the influence and impact of the truth that's on that scroll, it's bitter and upsetting for him. Um, the fearful judgments that remain um, in God's eternal plan for the world are not only distressing, but as John internalizes that revelation, he realizes they're rapidly coming. They're rapidly coming. And um, what we see here is that John is recommissioned as God's prophet. He's been commissioned before the first of Revelation as God's prophet. And so it's significant that he's recommissioned right here as God's prophet to carry these words of judgment um, to the world. It's a, it's a testament to how serious this judgment that's coming really is, that God stops for a second time and recommissions John as his prophet. And even as bitter and as painful as it must have been for John to write down the judgments that are coming, we know he obeys, don't we? We know he obeys because we have that record right here in our hand. This is our tangible evidence of John's obedience as he's recommissioned as God's prophet. Regardless of how 
painful it was for John. He fulfills his important calling as he records God's final judgment. But he also has the blessing of recording um, Jesus' return to establish God's kingdom on the earth as well. And I imagine that helped him digest the words of judgment. In God's divine pause right here, um, he points us to the bigger picture of his eternal plan. He affirms for us the great truth in the midst of all these hard judgments that the kingdom of the world will become the kingdom of God according to God's divine plan. The mystery of God will be fulfilled when Jesus reigns on the earth. And you know what it reminded me of, too? It reminded me that we can pause, too. You know what? Sometimes our circumstances today are hard and difficult. They may make our stomach bitter as well. Even as we know the goodness of God's mercy and faithfulness and power in our life, but, you know, we can pause, too, in the midst of our bitter, discouraging moments in life, in the midst of being dismayed at what's going on in the world around us. And we can remember who he is, just like the sweetness that John ingested here. We can remember his pow that he's powerful, that he's faithful, that he's merciful, that he is sovereign. And in our pause... We can praise him for the eternal future that he has planned for us. It's real. And there will be a day when that future is no longer delayed. Let's look at um, chapter 11 together here. Look at verse 1 in chapter 11. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there, but do not measure the court. Outside the temple, leave that, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. Now, these verses are um, interesting because we see John instructed to measure an earthly temple um, in Jerusalem here that's identified as the holy city. And the act of measuring the inner court of the temple and its worshipers uh, signifies God's ownership and possession. He's measuring it because it's his. He owns it. Uh, in our world, it would be like having our property surveyed because we've got a real estate deal. That survey certifies that we own the property. Now, the earthly temple in Jerusalem was actually destroyed by the Romans in 70 A.D. As John writes this in 95 A.D., he knows that no earthly temple actually exists anymore in Jerusalem. But the scriptures seem to suggest here and other places that a future earthly temple in Jerusalem one day is going to exist and the nation of Israel will once, be, once more be able to worship and some people think even offer sacrifices. In fact, if you do an internet search today, you're going to see that there are societies and organizations that exist in Israel um, that have plans and preparations for this third temple. They have actually made priestly garments that could be worn by priests in this third temple, and they're supposedly training and preparing people to offer sacrifices in this future temple. But there's a problem because currently um, in Jerusalem, the Temple Mount, which is supposedly the site of this 
third temple that we see John measuring here in Jerusalem is occupied by the Dome of the Rock, which is a sacred, holy Muslim site. So the conflict in the Middle East plays a role in whether this third earthly temple that we see existing during the tribulation is going to be built. Much would have to happen uh, in our world to allow that site to be available for the building of this third temple. Now, as we see John measure God's temple here, we also learn that the outer courts of the temple have been overtaken, overrun by the Gentiles during the 42 months described by John here. And the debate for theologians is whether this 42 months that John talks about um, is the first half of the tribulation or the second half of the tribulation, which is called the Great Tribulation. And one of the best arguments I read as I read through all this information um, is that during the first half of the um, tribulation, there's peace with Israel. A peace treaty has been made. So it would seem unlikely that disrespect was given to the temple that John uh, talks about here while peace with Israel existed. <coughs> during peaceful times, Gentiles would probably not be trampling Jerusalem or the Holy Temple. It's probably, he's probably talking about the second half of the tribulation when the peace is broken and the Antichrist does um, defile the temple with total disregard for its sacredness. So let's read a little bit more about this. Look at verse 3. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. So what we see here is at this third earthly temple that John is talking about here, God has appointed two prophets that he describes as witnesses to stand at this temple for three and a half years. And again, it seems like this must be the second half of the tribulation, the great tribulation, since they are pouring out significant judgments, significant judgment. During their three and a half years, they have the divine power to cause droughts, plagues, devastating supernatural events to consume with fire anyone that opposes him. But the really big question everyone asks when we talk about the two witnesses is who are they? I don't know whether you talked about that in your groups this morning. It has been speculated that it is Moses and Elijah because Moses and Elijah were with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration and Moses and Elijah had some of the similar powers that we see described here. Elijah was able to stop the rain. Moses was able to call down plagues. But it's also been speculated that this is Enoch and Elijah. Since both Enoch and Elijah were apparently translated to heaven without dying, and we're going to see these two witnesses experience death here. But here's the best explanation about their identity. 
get ready, write this down. We don't know. We don't know. We don't know. What we do know is it's two prophets raised up by God, and God could have told us their names if we needed to know their names. But uh, it's two prophets raised up by God to have an amazing ministry during the three and a half years of the Great Tribulation. And these two prophets do have an amazing ministry. They are described as olive trees and lampstands, and both of those are necessary um, to be light in the darkness. Oil from the olive trees provides uh, fuel for the light. These two prophets, through the incredible power of God's Spirit, are going to constantly, day and night, for three and a half years, shed light in the darkest period of mankind's history. Day and night, they will witness and testify for the Lord their God, and he protects them. For three and a half years, he protects them from every single attack. And I can only imagine how often they may have been attacked for the words of truth that they're speaking. But there is a day when the ministry of truth has served its purpose in God's eternal plan. Let's read what happens. Look at verse 7. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that is symbolically called Sodom in Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some of the people's tribes, languages, and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice with them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets have been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. It's amazing to me that the word of truth is described as a torment here to those that dwell on the earth. The beast that attacks and kills God's prophet is Satan himself. That's why it says he rises up out of the pit. Technology is going to allow people from all over the world to see their bodies lying in the streets of Jerusalem. Um, And it's interesting, if you read any of the older theologians, those that were written Um, commentaries that were written even before the 1950s, what they speculate about is how is everyone going to be able to see this? We know how everyone is going to be able to see this. On their phones, wherever they are, they're going to be able to see these witnesses lying dead in the streets. And the account of celebration of their death reminds me of what a perverted version of our Christmas celebrations this seems to be. They're parties and gifts and joy from unbelievers, just like we celebrate every single Christmas, the gift of our Lord Jesus. It's creepy to me to think about that. Um, It's a snapshot of how perverted a world that completely turns its God, its back on God and truth really is. But their joy is short-lived, fortunately, isn't it? Because after three and a half days of parties and celebrations and joy, the unbelieving world is treated to a miracle. A miracle from God himself. He breathes life into the prophets, which reminds us of how he breathed that first breath of life into his creation, Adam, 
And then they ascend into a cloud just like Jesus after his resurrection. There's so much that they could have noticed if they'd watched carefully. This is a distinct act of God that should remind the whole world who's watching, everyone is watching, that God has supreme power over life and death. It's a warning. It's a warning to a world that is facing death, and it's a display of God's incredible grace that should show everyone that's watching that he alone has power, not just over the physical world, the birds and the trees, but he has power over all mankind. Okay, look at verse 13 with me. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. So the earthquake that rocks Jerusalem here as these uh, witnesses are ascending into the cloud, into heaven, um, it really resembles the earthquake that rocked Jerusalem as Jesus hung on the cross, breaking open tombs and resurrecting the dead. As the world witnesses the resurrection of these two prophets, um, the deadly earthquake signals the end of the sixth woe, Uh, as a tenth of the city and 7,000 people perish. Those who remain are rightly so terrified. And there's an interesting um, phrase in here. It says, they gave glory to the God of heaven. Now, all of us that read that would automatically assume in our minds that they had finally, this was finally, God had gotten through to them this earthquake and the death and the ascension into heaven, finally their eyes were opened and they had turned from the Antichrist, from Satan, and placed their faith in the one true God. But I I read a lot about this, and almost every single thing I studied and read said we don't have any evidence of that. What this really points to is um, something that we all see in our everyday lives. I think all of us know people that say, yeah, I think there's a God, and maybe God did this or that, but they're not ready to turn from the life that they're currently living and place their whole hearts in the hands of Jesus Christ. One theologian um, suggested that Their fears led them to acknowledge the wrath and the power of God without any true heart change. Another one suggested that this was similar to the demons who acknowledged that Jesus was the Son of God, but they never gave their allegiance to him. An acknowledgement of the existence of God is different from embracing him fully and completely as your Savior. So we see here that the second woe or the sixth trumpet is now complete as this earthquake uh, wreaks more havoc on the world. The third woe or that seventh trumpet, ladies, is going to happen quickly. And so not only do the judgments escalate right here as this seventh trumpet um, is sounded, but the timing escalates as well. With the seventh trumpet will come the last judgments, the seven bowls, the end of the age, and the second coming of Jesus. And the bigger picture 
that God gives us here in his divine pause is that he is the supreme power over life and death. And that's an important truth that the world that was facing certain death should have accepted. Although these two witnesses were slain by evil, tells us Satan himself rose up to slay them, evil does not rule in this world, even in death. With these final judgments imminent, God's message to the world and to all of us is that his plans will never be thwarted by evil. Look at Romans um, 8.28 on your verse sheet. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. And Job says this in Job 42.2, I know that you can do all things, that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. He is the supreme power over life and death, and it's a great reminder for us in our world today that even in the midst of our hardest times, our most difficult seasons, we need to remember that his plans for our life are going to triumph over any of our circumstances, even the ones that are dark and difficult. He is the supreme authority and power in our lives, our God can turn tragedy into triumph. Okay, let's finish chapter 11 together. Look at verse 15 with me. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both great, small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. So John is once more witnessing a scene in heaven. He's been in heaven, then he's been on earth. Now he's back in heaven again. And what an amazing scene this is for John to witness as the seventh trumpet sounds, the process of destroying the earthly dominion of Satan is already in view here as the seventh bowls pour out for those final judgments. And John hears not one voice, but he hears many voices. It must have been an incredible chorus um, declaring that Christ is triumphant. Christ is triumphant and he's coming to rule on the earth. You know, the prophets have often reminded God's people that this day would come. One day, earthly rule would pass fully and completely into God's hands forever. Look at Daniel seven fourteen, And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. 
And Zechariah 14.9 says, And the Lord will be king over all the earth. And on that day, the Lord will be one, and his name one. So as John listens to the 24 elders here worshiping God in heaven, he's hearing an announcement that he's longed for probably all of his days. And John, uh, since Jesus went to be with the Lord. Uh, and he's hearing this incredible announcement in heaven that Christ's reign on the earth in the millennial kingdom has begun. Now, we need to remember that although John's vision sees Christ reigning in the millennial kingdom as an already accomplished deed happening as he witnesses, our view of Christ's reign is still unfortunately, in the future. What John writes here in the present, we are going to experience one day in the future. And as John records the elders' worship here, we get a peek into that millennial kingdom as well, into Christ's reign on the earth. He tells us that the dead will be judged, that God's faithful servants and prophets and saints will all be rewarded. And then we finish this chapter as we began. We're back in the Lord's temple, aren't we? John started out measuring the earthly temple. We're here in the Lord's heavenly temple. Um, This temple, the Lord's heavenly temple, can't be overrun. It can never be desecrated or destroyed as the nation of Israel's earthly temples were throughout the ages. This temple with the Ark of the Covenant, with God's great displays of power, of thunder and lightning flashes, and, and uh, is a showcase of God's power and his righteousness as John gets a look into that heavenly temple. God's majesty is on display for him. And as we openly view the Ark, that was once only accessible to the high priest of Israel in the Holy of Holies. We can be reminded when Jesus is king on the earth, he will be accessible to all. So the bigger picture that we see here in God's divine pause is that the nations and the kingdoms of the earth, no matter how wealthy they are, how powerful they are, how manipulated they are, by Satan's schemes or men's egos, none, none will stand against a holy God at the end of the age. At the end of the age, every one of them is powerful against our great and mighty, powerless against our great and our mighty God. His kingdom will come. That is God's message during this divine pause. And it should remind us as we contemplate his kingdom come, we need to pause every day. We need to pause every day. And I know we are the busiest women on the face of the earth, but we need to pause every day and worship our sovereign king. He will reign on the earth. He will reward us for our faithfulness in that day. Look at Jesus' own words in Matthew 6, 9, as he prays, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The biggest picture we have during this divine pause, his kingdom will come. Pray with me, ladies. 
Father, we do pause and praise you today for the assurance that your kingdom will come, even in the midst as we read these hard judgments on a world that just refuses to bow to you. We know your kingdom will come. We thank you for that. We praise you for that. Lord, we pray that we will be women that um, share that truth with everyone we know that our Lord Jesus Christ will reign on this earth and we have the opportunity to step into that kingdom with him. Thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for our Lord Jesus. And I pray this in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.